All right, if you'll turn with me to Philippians in your copy of God's Word, the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 3. I'm only going to cover the first three verses today, but we're going to read 3, 1 through 11 just so that we have the, the full context. And as we continue to work through this, we'll continue to do that. It's important for us to know the context of the passages in which we're addressing. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see the glory and the truth of your word. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? May your spirit speak through me and use me. If there are words that I have written that are not beneficial, that you would rework those, and Lord, that you would just be glorified in everything. Thank you for the strength that you give. And strengthen us all to hear your word today, to hear, to be changed. Work in each of us. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as parents, one of our responsibilities, one of the responsibilities of parents is to to teach our children and to warn them, to warn them about potential dangers in life. And we do so because we love them. We love them. We want them to thrive. We want our kids to have the best lives possible, to to experience the the greatest amount of joy. And and we understand that with that, that's likely going to come with difficulties mixed in. Now, sometimes as parents, we overwarn because parents can be overprotective. They become what's known as helicopter parents, hovering over everything. Or I just heard a new one recently, lawnmower parents. Have you heard that one? Uh, where you just mow over everyone that's in your child's way. Um, so that's, that's, that's a couple philosophies there. Others, on, on the other side, will underwarn and are basically laissez-faire about the whole endeavor of parenting. Uh, you know, they like to, to call it free-range parenting. Just, you know, it's like free-range chickens in your backyard. Just the kids can do whatever they want, whenever they want. It's very little instruction and oversight. Now, I am not here to give a parenting lesson at all, but I am here 
to say that in pastoring, one of the realities is that we must continue to warn and instruct the flock of God. We must do so with patience and grace. You know, when you, when you feel a, a deep affection and love towards someone, towards a group of people, you want what is their best. You want their joy. And so you tell them, you instruct them, you counsel them. And that's what we come to in these verses before us in chapter 3. Paul continues to be a pastor, a shepherd of God's flock. He wants the people to experience joy in God, joy in their salvation, in their covenant relationship with God. And so what he does is he writes to them. He writes out of pastoral care. He writes uh, and he expresses caution and he gives counsel. So we see care, caution, and counsel. And my hope this morning is that we hear what Paul has to say, and also that our, our hearts would be drawn more and more by faith into the magnificent reality of what believers possess as those who are in Christ. What we have is being part of the covenant family of God. So Paul begins this section, he begins it with, finally, my brothers. Now, this is really more of a, a continuation of what, has, uh, what he has been writing already. One translation puts it this way, in addition, my brothers. He's picking back up, he's carrying on with his more direct teaching that he left off at 2.19 when he went into this narrative about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And even though that wasn't an interruption per se, but rather alongside his purpose, it did seem different in tenor. And so now he's coming back to an idea that we, we see in this command, this idea of rejoice in the Lord. That's the command in verse 1. And it connects back with what he wrote in 2.17 and 18. If you look back, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So then here he gives this command. And then prior to that, uh, of 2.17 and 18, he actually gave this, this call to hold fast to the word of life. He wants the people of God in Philippi to hold fast to Christ, to not abandon him to anything else. So he gives a command to rejoice. It's his heart. He wants them to find joy in the Lord. It, it in many ways, mirrors the heart of our Savior. John 17, 13 as Jesus prayed in the garden, he uttered these words. He says, but now I am coming to you. So Jesus says, I'm coming to you, the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, and we could take a lot of time just to unpack that prayer, to think of Christ's joy fulfilled in his people. Jesus and Paul, they want believers to have joy to take joy in God Himself. The force of Paul's command is that we, would, that we would take delight in Him, that we would find satisfaction in the Lord. And we know that, that Paul has called us to do this always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, 5, uh, 5, rejoice continually. And, you know, we should be able to, I, th I think, we should be able to, to a degree, recognize whether we're heeding this command or not. 
we should be able to, I, I know we're Presbyterians, and, you know, this is expressing excitement sometimes, um, but we should be able to, to notice whether we're taking joy in the Lord. It probably ought to be visible in the day-to-day. I'm not saying that, that we turn all happy-clappy and everything, but true joy in the Lord is not, you know, it's not oblivious to difficulty, but it's not absent in difficulty. It perseveres through it because joy is grounded in the Lord. The command is not just rejoice. It's rejoice in the Lord. And we can rejoice in the Lord through anything. It's an attitude that, that echoes in many ways the words of David from Psalm 16. Uh, verses 1 and 2, he's, he writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's language of joy. That's language of I know that in you is all my good. And then down in verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And then ends with these glorious three lines. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's taking joy in the Lord. It's understanding that it's seen. It's, it's, it's taking joy in God's presence and in His work for us. That, that's what we have as a grounding for our joy. That's the foundation upon which we stand in joy. And it's alluded to, I think, in Psalm 16, that there's also a sense in which rejoicing in the Lord actually serves as protection for us. Okay, it serves as protection. If we're resting satisfied in Christ, we're resting satisfied in the Lord, that keeps us from turning to, and, and we sang this earlier, to the, the flashing lights and, and fleeting shadows. It, it keeps us, if we're satisfied here, it's going to keep us from running here and here to the things that do not satisfy. There's safety in rejoicing in the God who has made covenant with us in Christ. There's safety in continuing to take delight. And I think seeing this rejoice in the Lord and understanding this, it helps connect with what's going to follow, what Paul continues to say Alec Moitier, one commentator, had some helpful words for that. He said, the command is relevant, as we shall see, to the the controversy into which the apostle plunges as he takes issue with those who would add to Christ other factors and conditions as necessary to salvation. This is the first and greatest threat to true joy in the Lord. He wants to preserve the purity of our joy that's in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Alone. Not added to, but in Christ alone. Because you see, part of rejoicing involves satisfaction. 
you don't rejoice in anything that you're not satisfied in. That you don't show satisfaction in something in which you take no delight. When we rejoice in something or someone, we're actually stating that that thing in which we rejoice is good. That it's delightful to us. That it's satisfying for us. That it's beneficial and right. And so Paul here is commanding us to rejoice very specifically again in the Lord because Christ is the ground of our joy, the place of our gladness. Our rejoicing is to be in the one who gave himself for sinners and rebels like you and me. Our joy is to be in our Savior. Earlier this week, uh, one of the prayers of confession that I read was from Martin Luther, and some of it reminded me of this. He, he, he wrote this. He said, "'O oh Lord, I, I do not deserve a glimpse of heaven.'" And I'm unable with my works to redeem myself from sin, death, the devil, and hell. Nevertheless, you have given me your Son, Jesus Christ, who is far more precious and dear than heaven and and much stronger than sin, death, the devil, and hell. For this I rejoice, praise, and thank you, O God, without cost. And out of pure grace, you have given me this boundless blessing in your dear Son. Through him, you take sin, death, and hell from me, and do grant me all that belongs to him. Folks, why would we not rejoice in the one who took sin, death, and hell from us and gave us everything that belongs to him? All the rights and privileges of a son of God. So that's the command, rejoice in the Lord. And after this, we get even a further glimpse of Paul's heart. It's just really, in some ways, it's from a different angle. He writes, to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. These same things are, we don't know exactly what it is. We don't know if there was a previous letter or anything along those lines, but it's likely just what he's been teaching them over and over again about Jesus, the gospel about God. It's what he's been instructing from day one. It's what's important. And sharing with people the goodness and glories of Christ is no trouble to Paul, and actually it's safe for them. It's safe. It's protection for them. As they know what's real, they can see the counterfeit. And one can never tire of setting forth what is good. One can never tire from protecting the flock of God. Calvin, who was a man with a beautiful pastor's heart, wrote this. He says, Unquestionably, it is the part of a good pastor, not merely to supply the flock with pasture and to rule the sheep by his guidance, but to drive away the wolves when threatening to make an attack upon the fold. And that not merely on one occasion, but so as to be constantly on the watch and to be indefatigable. For as thieves and robbers are constantly on the watch for the destruction of the church, what excuse will the pastor have if, after courageously repelling them in several instances, he gives way on occasion of the ninth or tenth attack? I read that there because Paul said it's it's safe for 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 me to continue to write this, and what he moves into now is that warning that protection for them. 
He has to because there are thieves and robbers. There are wolves looking to devour and destroy the church. And so protection and warning, those things must be constantly given. So look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a fairly abrupt change, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord. Look out for the dogs. And what sticks out in this is he has this repetition of look out, doesn't he? Look out, look out, look out. He's saying, beware, watch out, give careful attention to. But who or what is he telling them to be on the lookout for? He gives three descriptions, and, and he actually does it with some, some beautiful rhetorical skill that unfortunately we can't see in English, but every object of look out in Greek starts with the letter K, and it just builds and builds and builds. But the first one is he says, look out. He says, look out for the dogs. So is Paul just kind of a cat person here? I don't, th- I don't think so. I really don't think Paul was a cat person, but... The question is, to whom is Paul actually referring at this point? The term dogs was used uh, for those who were considered worthless and vulgar. Uh, And it came over time to be used by Jews in reference to the Gentile, because the Gentile were those outside of the covenant community of God. So the dogs were those outside. They were not in the covenant community. And that's an important point for us to remember as we continue to work through this, because just by having, look out for the dogs, we really have no clue who he's talking about at this point. And so we come to the second term. He says, look out for the evildoers. Now, this language is reminiscent of what we find throughout the Psalms. I'll just give you a couple instances. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 6, 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And Psalm 14, 4, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So these evildoers were those who were working, they were working that which was against the people of God. Now, the irony is, as we get to know who it is, they thought they were doing the work of the Lord. At least, that's what they stated they were doing it for. But in reality, these evildoers were actually ruining and destroying the church. They were taking away joy in the Lord and severely harming the flock of God. But who were these people? Who were these people? It's starting to become more and more clear with this phrase, and especially as we get to the next one, but we'll, we'll move on here, that these people were Judaizers. They were of the, the same ilk as, as what we um, hear about in Acts 15.1, where um, Luke wrote, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were those saying, unless you do this, Christ is not enough. Christ, folks, Christ is not, they'd say Christ is necessary, 
But it's also necessary to add something to him, to add circumcision, to add following the law. And folks, listen carefully here. When anything is added to Christ, it is another gospel. It is not the gospel. Paul makes it clear in Galatians that those who preach another gospel, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. And so we, we see this more and more because the last thing that he tells them to watch out for is look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, technically, the word is just mutilation. Watch out for the mutilation. And it refers to cutting up in pieces. And this term makes it abundantly clear what Paul thought of their teaching. He thought their teaching mutilated the gospel. Forcing Gentiles or, or anyone to be circumcised in order to come into the church was mutilation. It was an abominable distortion of the gospel. And Paul is saying that these teachers don't deserve, though they take pride in circumcision, they don't actually be deserved to be recognized as circumcised. Instead, they're mutilated. They're the mutilation party. What they took pride in it was nothing but a disgusting distortion of the gospel of grace. When, when they thought they were bringing people into covenant with God, what they were actually doing and teaching was cutting them off and teaching them to rely on false hopes, on works, on ritual, on tradition, rather than on the grace of God alone in Christ alone. So what we have is Paul with some pretty startling language stating that these Judaizers are the ones who must be regarded now as Gentiles. So these people who are saying, you have to follow the Jewish law, you have to be circumcised, you're dogs. You're outside the covenant community. You are spiritual Gentiles. You are outsiders. Now, sadly, there are those who operate with Judaizing tendencies still today. When we put requirements on others beyond faith and repentance in Christ alone to be saved, in order to be Christians, we are off base. And I'm going to attempt to be an equal opportunity admonisher here, okay? I'm going to try and smack both sides. Okay, because we're pendulum people and we like to swing from one side to the next and on the right or the left, those ex the, the ex ain't good in this. So now on some fronts, you're, you're told unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. Or unless you're baptized in a certain way, you're not saved. Those, I hope those are pretty obvious. That's not good. That's a distortion of the gospel. Those are explicit. But then there are those, you know, often unwritten mores that come into the life of a church and in communities. And I'm not going to hit them all here, but one, you know, some would say, if you don't vote for Republicans, you're not a Christian. You might laugh, but I've heard it. And I know it's a feeling many people have because they're like, there's no way you could vote for a Democrat who's pro-choice. And there's some on the other side that say, if you vote this way, there's no way you're a Christian. 
If you drink alcohol, you can't be a Christian. How you choose to school your children is another way people like to impose something on others. Did you have your 30-minute quiet time this morning? You know quiet time? That term's not in the Bible, just in case you were wondering. You might be able to find those two words, but they're not, they're not like what we talk about. Over the past couple years, how you've handled COVID has been a litmus test on whether you're a good Christian or not. Do you love your neighbor? Or do you believe in the freedom that we have in the gospel? How about, are you anti-racist? Not just not a racist, but are you anti-racist? And you could throw in a whole host of other progressive tropes with that. And they're all a test. And I will just say this right now, it's all ridiculous and it's all wrong. All of it steals the joy that one can have in Christ. All of it distorts the gospel of grace. Folks, anytime, anytime we add anything to the gospel as something that we must do to be saved, it is a mutilation of God's gospel of grace. Don't do that. Don't. You might, so there are things we are convicted about. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus was born of a virgin. The things that we confess in the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, those are convictions. I will break fellowship. I'm not going to fellowship in a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness church because they don't believe the same things we do about the gospel. But then there are other things called persuasions. You can believe those really strongly, but do not impose them on other people. Just because the church down the street isn't reformed does not mean they're not Christians. Don't ever go there. Okay? Imposing that kind of stuff is wrong, and I don't want us distorting the gospel, and I don't want us stealing our joy in the Lord and trying to take away somebody else's. So Paul cautions against it, and so do I. Don't do that. Look out for those people. Beware. Look out for that tendency in your own heart. But then Paul moves on to give what I think is just wonderfully sweet counsel. He grounds his readers in truth. He gives assurance by describing how one knows that they are in the faith. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This begins quite emphatically. In, in Greek, it starts with the, the word we is placed first. So it's like, we, hey, we are the circumcision, and this is who we are. It's placed there to give weight. It's, it's not those who are pushing circumcision as a must, but it is those who rest in the gospel. But folks, how can Paul say that we are the circumcision when some of those people around Paul and maybe even many of those in Philippi weren't even circumcised? Why is he saying we're the circumcision? 
Well, what was circumcision? Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with His people. He instituted it in Genesis 17 with Abraham, but it was never that which was meant to be what, what, you know, so to speak, put somebody over the top. Our relationship with the Lord is solely by grace. It is by grace through faith. Even Abraham, we are told, even in Genesis 15, says he believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. God entered covenant with us. We're called to believe, to have faith. Circumcision is ultimately a work of the heart. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then listen to Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The circumcision of the heart is what matters, this work of the Spirit of God. So we are the true circumcision. Who? What? And he gives us three helpful phrases. The first is, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Worship not by ritual and forms and kind of this dead rote way, but by God's Spirit. It doesn't mean that liturgy is bad. I'm not saying that. But that we worship by the Spirit of God. It reminds me of Jesus' encounter in John 4 with the woman at the well. There's this beautiful and revealing encounter there between Jesus and, and this woman. And, and, and there's much more to the story that I can address, than I can address now. But what I think is relevant to our time is that as Jesus talks to her about the gift of God, he ends up exposing her need. He ends up exposing it really radically and, and how she has been trying to fill her need with other things, things other than the Lord. And when he does that, she deflects and tries to turn the conversation away because it's uncomfortable. And if we looked at John 4, 19, it says this, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's asking this question to try and deflect. And, and Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We have to have the truth. We have to know that. But we worship by the Spirit of God by His work of applying the work of Christ to our lives to deal with our sin. Romans 8, starting in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Adding circumcision, those things, it could not do it. 
But he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we are this circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus. And you could translate that as who boast in Christ Jesus. We rely on him. We glory in him. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our boasting is in Him and His work, not in following the works of the law, not in following our own righteousness, not in trying to set it up for ourselves and earn our way to heaven. We cannot keep the law. We cannot follow even the standards that we set up. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 25 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then listen to verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Those who only rely on that work, that ritual, that sign, rather than on God alone. Paul addressed the same spirit in his letter to the Galatians when he stated emphatically in chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it from me, to boast except in, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Folks, the, the, our shorter catechism defines faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful question and answer. Question answer 86. What is faith in Jesus? The answer is faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Not, it's not where we receive and rest upon him mostly as he's offered to us in the gospel and in the traditions of the church and everybody else around me who thinks that's how I should live. No, it's him alone as he's offered in the gospel, the preaching of good news. Well, then lastly, in some ways, Paul almost kind of puts this previous idea in the negative when he says, we're the circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh. And the flesh refers in this instance to include, as Calvin wrote, everything of an external kind in which an individual is prepared to glory. He gives the name of flesh to everything that is apart from Christ. He thus reproves, and in no slight manner, the perverse zealots of the law, because not satisfied with Christ they have recourse to grounds of glorying apart from Him. And you think about it, that's a sad line. Not satisfied in Christ. This is why there's that command to rejoice in the Lord, to be satisfied in Him. So what defines a believer? What's that encouragement that Paul gives? Is that we worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ alone. We glory in Him alone, and we put no confidence in our flesh. Nothing is to be added to Christ because Christ plus anything else 
ends up being nothing. Again, it's a mutilation of the gospel. So, folks, Paul gives this warning, expresses this care, gives this counsel because he loves the people. He loves the gospel. He loves the Lord. And he knows that there is no joy in the Lord when we add anything to his work. And there's also no security. There's no safety. There's no protection. There's no rest for our wearied souls when we attempt to add other things to make us right with Christ. Because you'll always be going, did I, did, I, did I do enough? Does God love me? Was, it, was, I, was I doing enough? And He loves us because He loves us. And He loves us so much that He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. Believe in Him. Paul desires that as believers we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That entails rejoicing in the Lord and resting fully in Him, not being duped into adding anything else. Because, folks, it is only the work of Christ by which we stand, by which we are saved, by which we find life and joy and peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for your gospel of grace. And Lord, we ask that you would just work it deep in our heart. I know we all have the tendency to want to add something, to, to think about our own works or, or anything along those lines, whether we impose it on someone else or not, but it robs us of the joy in you. And so, Lord, root deep into our hearts. Remove this tendency that, that we want to we contribute. We want to do something. We need to do something. No, it is in Christ alone. And so, Lord, may we, even now, continue to worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.